All right. Let's jump right in. As we've been working through this series, the alternate reality, beginning to, what we're trying to accomplish is to begin to look at things through the lenses of Scripture. The reality is, is that you and I are in a world that we are not a part of. We see that in John chapter 17, verse 13, it says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. And so what we're seeing here is that, yes, we are in a world that we are not a part of, just like Jesus was. Jesus was our example. To do what Jesus did, to say what Jesus said, that is our example. The other people in the Bible, Paul says that you follow me as I follow Christ, implying that if he wasn't following Christ, we're not following him. His example is an example of what Christ had done. And so we're to follow Christ's example. So we are in a world that we are not a part of, and this world hates us because we are not of it. You see, it's a lot easier to get along with somebody when they do everything that you do. There's no condemnation that way. If you're a part of something or you're doing something, it's a piece of cake. You even see this inside of church groups. Different denominations look down their nose at other denominations. You know, the biggest one of this, I always crack up, is that there's kind of like if you want to become reformed, which is kind of Calvinistic, predestination, all that kind of stuff, you basically got to grow a beard, smoke a pipe, and get real grumpy. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things. It's like, man, there's just traits. There's attributes that go, seem to go along with that. And the thing is, is that if you're not with us, you're against us. That's kind of the mentality. Now, they would never straight up come and say that, but, they, but essentially that's how they act. And, and so as we're looking at this, we're like, okay, well, what, what is Jesus referring to here? And as we've been diving into this a little deeper, we're trying to understand, ultimately, our role on this earth, to find our place in this world, to steal a song line from Michael W. Smith, okay? It's to find our place. What is our ultimate destiny, if you will, on this earth? And it's put in real simple terms, is we walk as Jesus walked. We should be doing what Jesus did. When I talk to friends of mine that are ministers around different parts of the world, to hear the difference in ministry of what happens in other parts of the world versus America and more of your more developed countries, it's, it's a big difference. Where theirs is more grassroots, ours is more, how would I put it, commercial, I guess? We're more about the gliss and the glamour. They're more about the personalities, like the, the one-on-one time. Here where you get somebody that gets raised up um, immediately as a leader, as soon as, you know, if, they, if a famous person or an athlete or something like that gives their life to Christ, what happens? They're on every, like, church talk show possible. They're not ready to handle the, the pressure from that, but that's what happens. I mean, Kanye West uh, supposedly gave his life to Christ. I mean, oh my goodness, it's like he is now the, the metric that we compare all other Christians to. Probably not a great idea. Just saying. I mean, I pray that he gave his life. I, I hope that's true. But that's not who we judge ourselves against. We judge ourselves against the, 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 the standard that is God. And so what Jesus did for us has enabled you and I to now walk in a reality different than what they were walking in before. See, a lot of the, the frustration between the Pharisees and even his own disciples is because they were not looking at it through the, the world through spiritual lenses. They were looking at it through what they can see, what they touch, what they know, what they feel. Even when Jesus came the first time, what were they waiting for? They were waiting for him to set up his kingdom. 
That's why they're politicking for position. Can I, can I sit at your right hand? Can I, can I sit at your left hand? You know, and Jesus goes into that whole thing. If, if you want to lead, then you go from behind. I mean, they were, way, they were expecting something, and Jesus came and corrected that. Because what they were expecting versus what was really going to happen were not the same thing. And see, that's part of the trouble that we have is we place an expectation on God based on something we heard or were told or taught or read somewhere in a book or whatever. We have this expectation of God over here, but is that really how he has presented himself? It comes back to the idea that God works in mysterious ways. No, he doesn't. He works in predictable patterns. So the one thing that we know about God that has always been true is that he is faithful to his word. And we have to understand his word. And so we get on to this, this section here dealing with communion. We talked about that this morning. Of, of talking about like what is going on there because we've turned it into this kind of this thing that we do and we don't really there's no meaning behind it we don't take it seriously so let's look at Luke 22 real quick and we're going to move on verse 14 it says when the hour had come he sat down with the 12 apostles with him then he said to them with fervent desire I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer for I say to you I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God then he took the cup and gave thanks and, and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them. He said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, <coughs> excuse me, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So he's laying something out here. That this is the thing that I have done. I am doing this for you. And as I told you, is that we're realizing here is what's happening here. Well, we know that this is the Passover meal, okay? It was called the Seder. And this is something that they do every year. But he says, with fervent desire, I've been wanting to eat this Passover. Like, very specific. Because you know he's eaten at least two years prior. He's been with the guys for three years. He's eaten it every year of his life. They've partaken of the Passover. They were to go back to Jerusalem and celebrate it. That's what was required. And so they had done that. So this isn't the first but this one was unique. And it wasn't unique in the fact of what they were doing and necessarily the food or anything like that. But what was happening here as we begin to unfold this is that this is what we called a covenant meal. It was a peace offering that was being brought and it was a covenant meal where the breaking of the bread and the consuming of the wine matches the image of these covenant meals. And we've gone through all that. We're not going to rehash all of that today. But we, we've looked at that and we're like, okay, you can see this all through Scripture. You see it with, with God and man, but you see it between nations. You see it between people groups. That they would have a covenant meal. Jacob and Laban, just as an example, they did it. When, when Abraham brought a, a tithe to Melchizedek as he's coming back from Sodom, he brings out the bread and the wine. And we've seen that whole picture of how Melchizedek and Jesus and the high priest and all that other stuff. You see, what's happening now is that we are now at peace with God. We take that for granted. It's kind of like the generation we have now completely takes freedom for granted. Like, we don't even understand. You know, you hear about all this stuff about censoring speech and hate speech and all of that other stuff. They don't know what it's like to not be able to say whatever's on their mind with no consequences attached to it. But if you were brought up in a world where there's extreme consequences, you don't take that for granted. It's kind of like those that grew up in the Depression. They were always very frugal, like always very frugal, because they remember a time where there wasn't enough, and you didn't know necessarily where your next meal was coming from. Is that us today? Heavens, no. 
That is not us today. We know where our next meal is going. They talk about things like food insecurity. There's not food insecurity in this country. We may not get the food we want, but there's plenty of it. Most of us, I'm speaking to myself, could probably last a little while without any food, just saying. I got plenty in reserve. You know, so it's like, what are we, what are we dealing with here? Is that just like those people take for granted the aspects of freedom and the other spot. We take for granted this concept of being at peace with God. Not only being at peace, but having access to God. Because nobody had access to God except one man. That was the high priest. One day a year. You and I, what do we do? We pray when we want. We enter boldly into the throne room of fire. We have a relationship with God unique that nobody else had ever had prior to this. And this all starts from this moment where this peace meal is taking place. This covenant meal. And so we tend to take this for granted. In Colossians chapter 1, I read this last week. Verse 19, it says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether the things on earth or the things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So do we have peace? Yeah. How do we have it? Through the blood. In Ephesians 2, verse 14, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinance, so as to create himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enemy. And he came and he peached, uh, preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. What did he preach? Peace. Like we just take that for granted. But they didn't have peace with God. Ephesians 6, verse 14 says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Why is it the gospel of peace? That Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection has now created a way that you and I can have peace and fellowship with God. This was new information for them. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Y'all, we don't comprehend. We take for granted this peace and access. No different than any other kingdom. You did not have access to the king. You didn't just walk into the throne like, yo, king, what's up? You know what happens if you do that? Off with his head. Even the king's wives did not have access to the king. He had to be summoned. Like, we don't get it because we don't live in that world. But you and I are at peace with God. That is what Jesus was doing. Laying out this peace offering, this covenant meal, on behalf of mankind. You see, we've, we've got to begin to think differently. We need to begin to think biblically so let's go to hebrews chapter 8 i want to show you guys something today we're going to start on this idea today but we're and, and i'm going to go fairly quickly through this but we're going to build upon it in the weeks to come it says ephesians or excuse me hebrews chapter 8 verse 1 it says now this is the main point of the things that we are saying we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the lord erected and not man so let me stop for a moment <coughs> what's happening here is the book of hebrews is written to whom the Hebrews, the Jewish people, who knew all the Old Testament stuff. If you don't understand the Old Testament, you'll never understand the book of Hebrews. 
the book of Hebrews in its context is the entirety of the book. It is making a distinction between the old covenant and this new covenant. And the difference between the high priest, the Aaronic priesthood, and the Melchizedekian priesthood, which Jesus is. Okay? So, we're seeing a difference here. Verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifice. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all the things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. Is obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. Now let's stop for a moment. See, he's making a distinction between Jesus and the high priest. The high priest every year had to make sacrifices continually. When did he get to stop? They never got to stop because there was never a fulfilling peace. There was never a time in which God's wrath was fully satisfied, that they were atoned for and covered, and never again did they have to make a sacrifice. Every year they had to do it. And he's making the distinction here that Jesus, being on this earth, couldn't have been the high priest, according to the, the uh, line of Aaron, because he didn't meet the qualifications. So there had to be something different, and now he's in heaven, and he's going into all this stuff. I'm not going to get into all of that. We'll get off into the weeds. But he says right here, he is a mediator of what? A better covenant that's established on better promises. So we see the word better used twice. A covenant which is better based on promises that are better. Well, in order to understand what that means, shouldn't we know what covenant we're comparing it to? In other words, what makes it better? What makes the promises better? It's a question we have to ask, and it, that's, this is the problem. And a lot of confusion lies in this, the fact that we do not understand covenants. Because we're not taught this growing up. When you go through Sunday school as a kid, they don't say, let me teach you covenant theology, okay? We're going to break this down from the very beginning. When you get into an adult, what do we talk about? Not this stuff. We talk about other stuff. We talk about God's love and his mercy and his compassion. All of those are bred out of this better covenant based on better promises. And if we don't understand that, then we can never understand the fulfillment that Jesus has done here. And so to understand this in its basic sense, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you seven covenants that are in the scriptures. This is not going to be in-depth, but it'll give you an idea. Because we have to understand is if we're going to talk about what makes the new covenant so much better. So a covenant is simply a contract, essentially. It's all it is. It's an agreement between two parties. Okay, Party A is going to do this. Party B is going to do this. There are two parts to that. I've got unilateral and bilateral. Now, this is not complicated, but unilateral means that it is on behalf of of one party. In other words, one party is acting on behalf of the other. The other party has nothing to do with it. They're a recipient of it. And bilateral means that there are uh, requirements of both parties, party A, party B. If you've ever entered into a purchase agreement on a piece of real estate, you have entered into a bilateral contract, which means that party A, the seller, has agreed to sell party B, the house, based on all the metrics that are found in the contract. Both parties have to act. If either party doesn't act on their end, either they don't show up with money or they change their mind, what happens? Contract's been broken. And there are consequences to that, but the contract's broken. So what we're talking about here is covenants. And as I've showed you is that covenants are all throughout Scripture. Okay, Covenants among people groups and lands and kings and all that other stuff. But there are also covenants between God and man. And there are seven of them that I've got up here. Okay. You've got the Adamic covenant, which is broken into two parts. 
You've got the Noahic covenant or the covenant of Noah. You've got the Abrahamic covenant. You've got the Mosaic covenant. You've got the Davidic covenant. And you've got the new covenant. Now, this is not all-encompassing, but understand that these seven, if you can understand this, it will help you understand parts of Scripture. And when I say seven, it's because the Adamic covenant is split into two. Just understand that. One part is called the Edenic. I'm sure somebody was counting just to make sure. Okay? But there are seven parts, 1A, 1B, however you want to say it. Say six. I don't care. Whatever floats your boat. So let's look at this first part. In Genesis chapter 1, this is the first part considered the Edenic covenant. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it should be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. So we're getting into the creation event. And here, after he creates man, he says, Let man have dominion over everything. Okay? He has given him dominion over everything, and he gives him a command. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. In other words, keep it in control. And he talks about the different food. Now, at this point, everybody was essentially a vegetarian. The best thing that came out of the flood, as I now give you permission to eat meat, it's a beautiful thing. Okay? God realized that he made a mistake there in not letting them eat animals. If he let them eat animals, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, never a problem. Why would you go get that when you got a nice steak sitting right here? But whatever. So this is the first part. God created them. He created them and gave them a job, essentially. Okay? Go to chapter 2, verse 15. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden <coughs> Excuse me, <coughs> to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Now this is the first idea of a covenant. God is basically mandated to man. Man is in agreement with this because there are consequences. It's that you have dominion and you have freedom to do whatever you want with the exception of this one thing. And if you do this, there are consequences attached to this. Okay? So in, in a sense that this is bilateral. It's bilateral in a sense that, yes, God has made a promise and man has to abide by that. And if they don't, there are consequences. So that's the Edenic part, but then you get to the Adamic part in chapter 3 with the fall of man and the serpent and all this other stuff. Go to verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. It says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree which, God, which I have commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it. 
all the days of your life, but thorns, both thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So now we have a distinction being made. There's enmity between Satan, essentially, and Eve and all of her descendants. Childbirth just got painful. Apparently it wasn't before that. There's going to be a rulership of the man over the woman now that there wasn't before. The soil, which produced, now will produce, but you've got to work it. There's also thorns and thistles and all of that. There's going to be a survival to, uh, uh, to be a struggle now because it's not just taking care of. Remember, he didn't have to water nothing. He didn't have to weed nothing. It's the ultimate garden. And now we also have death introduced. And the one thing about death is that it's inescapable. It is the fate of all living things at this point. Prior to that, there was no death. There was no death before sin. It's because of sin that death entered into the world. And so now we have this covenant set up that God has said, okay, as a result of you not keeping what I told you to do, here is the net result of all of this. And so we have this first idea of the introduction of a covenant. But now I want to get into these other parts. Because these other parts here, as we get into the covenant with Noah, we know the story. Is that man was wicked, you got the whole thing with the angels and the Nephilim. We're not, again, not getting into all the details. But the flood comes, and the flood goes. And as Noah is essentially getting off the boat, God is going to make a promise to Noah. So in Genesis chapter 9, verse 8, it says, Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, and as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Now stop. If God said, how do we know this is a covenant? Because God clearly said, I'm establishing my covenant with you. And not just you, but your descendants after you. Which would be who? All of us. There are eight people left. So we're all related in one way or another. And with every living creature that is with you. The birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you. All, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, thus I establish my covenant with you. Here it is. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud. And it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, as we're looking at this, we're asking the question, is it unilateral? In other words, one party acting on behalf of another, or bilateral, that both parties have a part to play in it? With the covenant with Noah, and all of them afters, which one is it? What's well, unilateral? Because God said, here is my covenant. I will never destroy the world with water again. Never. What does never mean? It's not going to happen. This is part of the reason you hear the arguments that was that just a local flood or a worldwide flood? Well, it couldn't be a local flood because we have seen destruction from local floods multiple times. We have lived it in this area. So it can't be that. And then he said a sign. And that sign is interesting. It implies that prior to that, there never was a rainbow. 
Now, maybe there was, but now this is the sign. And what is the sign for? Every time that God looks at it and every time that we look at it, it should be a reminder of the promise that God made. So should they ever, should man ever fear the world being destroyed with water again? No, because man has nothing to do with it. Now, let's change the terms. Let's just say that God had said, okay, Noah, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And here is, I will never destroy the world with water again if you do X, Y, Z. Suddenly, that is now a bilateral contract or covenant of which both parties have a part to play. And if, well, it'd be man, not God. But if, if man broke that covenant, what does that mean? That the flood is a possibility. So how many of you guys lose sleep at night concerned that God may flood the entire earth again? I hope none. Because if you begin to understand these covenants, you realize that God is true to his word. Now, that seems silly, doesn't it? Because, of course, we're not afraid of that. But just like any other covenant promise, we should look at it the same way. What did God promise? And if he promised it, what should I expect? Let's keep moving. Let's go to the Abrahamic covenant. Now, most people know this one. It's in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord has said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this is a nutshell version of this, okay? It's a little bit more in-depth than what we're going to go into today. But the nutshell version is, is simply this. God is going to take Abraham. He's going to put him into a deep sleep. It's the whole thing with the smoking oven and burning torch thing and, and God going through the sacrifice and all this other stuff that you can read it in other parts in, in chapter 15. But, but essentially that he is now going to take Abraham and he is going to make a covenant with him. And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation in a land that I'm going to show you. And I'm giving you that land. Okay, and I will bless you, and I'll make your name great. I'm going to make you essentially the, the father of many nations. There's other parts to this, and we know the whole thing with Isaac and all this other stuff. Now, what did Abraham have to do? Nothing. Could Abraham break that covenant? No. Could his descendants break that covenant? No, because it's unilateral. See, Abraham didn't do anything to earn the right to that covenant. Just like Noah didn't do anything to earn the right to that covenant. God is making a promise. This is what makes it unilateral. You guys, are you guys getting that? I hope you get that. Because it's not between two parties. Now, ultimately, there was a sign of this covenant, and, and without going into all the verses, that sign was circumcision. Now, they weren't the only nation that circumcised, but it was a sign of the circumcision. Many have asked, why that of all the things you could, like, why not give them a tattoo? That'd be a lot better, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but there's talk about the seed of the man and the, and the uh, seed of the woman passing through the sign of the covenant. It, it's speculative, but it would make sense. But ultimately, guys, what we need to know is that did God promise a land to Abraham? Yeah, absolutely. Did he give it to his people? Yeah, he did. Did he promise to make him a great nation? Yeah. And he, did he say all the families of the earth will be blessed? Yeah, because through that nation comes what? Messiah. That's how all the nations of the earth are blessed. So you guys see this. So now we've got two here that are unilateral. God made a promise on behalf to mankind. That's it. So man doesn't have to do anything. He can't break it. But now is where we see a change in the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? Here we go. Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. We're going to start at verse 3. 
And Moses went up to God. And the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of, of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So in bondage, as God had told Abraham what's going to happen, God brings them out of Egypt. He brings them to the mountain. Moses and a few others go up on the mountain, and this is where this covenant is being cut, the Mosaic covenant. And essentially God says, if you will obey my voice and keep my commandments, then you'll be a special treasure to me above all people. There's a whole lot going on in the background there that we don't have time for today. But above all people, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What's a holy nation? A nation set apart. And so Moses takes the words of God and lays them before all the people. And what is their response? All that the Lord has said, we will do. All of it. So is this unilateral or bilateral? It's bilateral. Because this covenant is unique. It's different than the ones we've seen before. This covenant has the nation of Israel keeping a part. And we have God keeping a part. Did God ever waver? Nope. Did the people? Oh my goodness. Within like 30 seconds they built the golden calf. Right? I mean they wasted no time at all. And if you read constantly like in the book of Judges. That you'll see that you know things are going pretty good. They begin to take things for granted. So then they start going after other gods, the Baals and all of that. So God sends judgment on them, just like he said he would do if you don't keep my commandments. So then the people cry out, God, we're so sorry, we shouldn't have done this. So God raises up a judge or a deliverer like Samson or, or Gideon or one of the others. And so God brings them out of this and brings them peace once again. And things get good. And then they start the process all over. That's the book of Judges in a nutshell. It is a big circle. So in this case, we have a covenant that is based off of two parties having a part to play in it. And this is important. Because when Hebrews is referencing a better covenant based on better promises, this is the covenant. Because this is the covenant that had made the people a special treasure, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is that kingdom, or that covenant, excuse me. Now there is a sign to this covenant. Who was this covenant between? It was between God and the nation of Israel. Now understand this. This will help you out immensely. If you understand that aspect, all that weird stuff in the Old Testament and how that applies to our lives today, who was this, this covenant between? God and Israel. Are you Israel? You are not Israel. Now, thou shalt not murder, really good advice. But you don't need it carved in stone to tell you that's a bad idea, okay? But there is a sign. Let's look at Exodus chapter 31, verse 12. Exodus chapter 31, verse 12, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So what was the sign of this covenant? 
keep it. So when we look at the Ten Commandments as a whole, most people today will tell you like, oh yeah, you know, we keep them all but that one. That one is the Sabbath, which is from Friday night to Saturday night. Well, no, the truth is, is we don't keep any of the commandments like that. Because as you'll see in the New Covenant, these things are written on our hearts. But what was Sabbath? It was a sign of the covenant. You see, it was something that made that nation unique. Because even at times where they would be attacked, they would keep the Sabbath. They wouldn't, they wouldn't raise up arms. They wouldn't work on the Sabbath. They would take that apart. If you go to Israel today, they still keep the Sabbath. Even as secular of a nation that they are, they still keep the Sabbath. They don't do certain things. It's so funny. I was just talking to Raleigh, our Jewish missionary, who's in Israel, and by the way, did get his citizenship finally. So that's done. We are progressing. But he's telling me all sorts of stories on the Sabbath. Like, even apps don't work on the Sabbath, on the phones. And I've told you this before, but I'll tell you it again. On, on the Sabbath, if you're in a hotel, as an example, they have a Gentile elevator and a Jewish elevator, and the Jewish elevator stops on every floor because pushing buttons is work. You can't do that on the Sabbath. And so you'll see them get on the elevator with the Gentiles and say, oh, can you push the 14th floor for me? You know, so petitioning somebody else to do work for you, not a problem. So again, there's always a workaround. It's kind of like the Amish folks. If you guys, you know they can't drive and they don't use electricity and stuff like that. But yet they can hire some non-Amish guy to drive them in a van to go do carpentry work, and they can operate telehandlers but I don't get it. Anyway, neither here nor there. But this Mosaic Covenant is the covenant of comparison. This is one of which man had a part to play, which means what? Man can break it, and man did break it. The nation of Israel broke it many, 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 many times, okay? But let's go to the next one, the Davidic Covenant. What is the Davidic Covenant? We will look at the same thing. Is it unilateral or is it bilateral? First Chronicles chapter 17. 11. First Chronicles 17 and verse 11, it says, And it shall be, when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your father, so he's talking to David, that I will set up your seed after you, and he will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my mercy away from him, as I took it from him who was before you, and I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Now this is ultimately referring to Messiah. But what is going on here? God is promising David that when you are gone, somebody from your lineage will sit on the throne in Jerusalem for all time. All time. And ultimately, and there are other parts of this that you get to, but that you will get to Messiah sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. So what did David have to do? Nothing. No, this is a unilateral covenant. God is making a promise to David. Now, here's a question. Did Messiah sit on the throne in Jerusalem? Not yet. You see, you talk about all these premillennial, postmillennial, all that kind of stuff. When you start to understand these aspects of it, you realize that Jesus is going to have to, to fulfill this covenant. Does God fulfill his promises? To fulfill this covenant, Jesus is going to have to sit on a throne in Jerusalem. Not spiritual Jerusalem, physical Jerusalem. This is why them coming back together as a nation was so powerful. We talk about end time stuff. It, the confusion out there is so great. And we're talking about Daniel on Wednesday nights. And, and there's a lot of confusion that comes from that. But it's like there are simply things that have to be fulfilled. I've told you guys that I've seen quotes from the early 1800s that says that every promise needed uh, to be fulfilled for Jesus to return has been fulfilled. 
and Israel wasn't in the land yet. And prior to that, about 95% of the people never thought that that was a big deal because the church had replaced Israel, which was nonsense because that's not what it says. So again, we see continuously, we're looking at Scripture as a whole, and these covenants are a big part of that because this covenant was a promise to David. David didn't have to do anything for it. All he had to do was be a recipient of it. That's it. So Abraham didn't have to do anything to be the father of many nations. He didn't have to do anything to acquire the land. God gave it to him. But the people of Israel, when they left Egypt, they had to keep the commandments. And there were consequences that they didn't. So you can see the differences here. So it's the promises of God, which brings us to this new covenant. What we've got to ask ourselves, is this new covenant unilateral or bilateral? In other words, do you and I have a part to play in this covenant and its promises? Because we don't use the term covenant, we use the term salvation. Salvation is a part of that covenant. In fact, every promise of that covenant should be a right to those who have partaken of that covenant. Is that fair to say? So let's start in Hebrews chapter 7. We'll start at verse 20. Now, I'm introducing this idea today, but we will build upon this because, again, just like any other contract, if you want to understand what your rights are, you should know what the terms and conditions are. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 20. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. So there's that term again. Better covenant. What's the surety mean? Guarantor. In other words, it's no different if you buy a piece of property. What do you got to put down? An earnest deposit. That earnest deposit is your guarantee that you will fulfill the condition of that contract. And what happens if you decide to walk away? You lose that deposit. So in this case, who is the surety of the better covenant? We don't know what makes it better yet. But who's the surety of it? Jesus is. We're off to a great start. Because if you ever want a guarantee from somebody, Jesus is kind of a good one to go with. Let's go to chapter 8, verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. So now he's the mediator. What does that mean? He's the go-between. And there's that term, better covenant, and we see better promises again. But what is the better covenant. Better covenant compared to what? The covenant that we're in comparison to is the Mosaic covenant. This is the one that it's looking at because this is the one that set Israel apart as a people specifically. They were chosen through Abraham but set them apart with the rules and regulations so that they could now have fellowship with God and they had to do a whole lot of stuff right in order to do it. Look at verse 7. For if that first covenant, referring to the Mosaic covenant, had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Now stop. How do we know where that first covenant is a reference to the Mosaic covenant? It's the only covenant cut 
after bringing them out of Egypt. So now we know what he's talking about, okay? In case you're wondering if I was making this up. So, it's not according. So whatever it is, it's different than the one that he made with them because they didn't continue in it and he disregarded them. There's a talk about him being divorcing them. Anyway, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and I will write them on their hearts. <coughs> I will be their God. They shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. So we see a distinction being made here. Because the distinction being made is this is different. It's not according to that Mosaic covenant. Well, what's the real difference here? Because God tells us what he's going to do. What part does man play in this? The answer is none. He doesn't play any part. God didn't say, you will be my people in this new covenant if you do X, Y, Z. Do these certain things. He said that he will be merciful to their unrighteousness, allowing them to enter in because that's not how the first one worked. What did they have to do in order to enter into fellowship covenant relationship? Those from the outside coming in because we're talking about creating one new man. They had to bring a sacrifice and had to go through a whole bunch of steps in order to do it. Circumcision was one of them. They had to reject everything that they had believed before. The term is repent. They had to reject their heritage, all their false gods. They had to do all of these different things before they could ever approach God in any way. And there was a mediator that was there to help them in that process. And that mediator was a man who also had to sacrifice for his sin. And then once that person entered in, he had to sacrifice continually to make atonement for his sin. <coughs> so who is the covenant between? What we see is when a covenant is made, God makes an agreement with the people involved. This covenant specifically is not between man and God, but between father and son on behalf of man. You see, there's nothing a person can do that gives them the right to enter into this covenant. Nothing. There's no laws that you have to keep in order to have the right to enter into this covenant. There's not a list of do's and don'ts, per se, that tell you, okay, if you're in this covenant, here's a list of things you need to do. I actually had somebody tell me that. A teenager one time said, man, it'd be so much easier if God just listed out a rule book, like, do this, don't do that. And I'm like, no, it wouldn't, because you'd never read it. He said here, instead of writing the laws on stone, he wrote them on their hearts. He says, and all will know me. This goes back to Romans 1, that although they knew me, in their futile thinking, they did not worship me, but worshiped the creation rather than the creator. So look at Titus chapter 1, verse 1. You see, this is a promise between the Father and Son. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, <coughs> according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords to, with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. When did he make that promise? So that means life was always going to be eternal from the very beginning. But look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. In verse 8 it says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, 
not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he has given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Who is this between? The Father and Son. The promise is to you and I. It's not according to our works, but according to his purpose. So as we begin to look at these covenants, we understand that there are covenants in which God made a promise on behalf of man. Man has nothing. There's also a covenant, which is the the, uh, antithesis to the new, of which God made a promise if the people will keep. And actually, God made a promise that will happen if the people don't keep the commandments. And both were true. But man had a part to play in this. But this new covenant, what part do we play in it? We don't. This isn't a covenant between God and us. This is the covenant between Father and Son on behalf of mankind. So if that's true, that means that you don't play a part in in receiving the promises. Because who's the mediator? Jesus. Who's the surety? Jesus. That's powerful, y'all. This is why we have peace with God. It's because of Him. We have to begin to understand this if we're going to understand any of it this new covenant, because you and I have a job to do. We have a calling from God to make disciples. And this is how we can boldly tell somebody their sins are forgiven or their sins are retained. is because we are in covenant relationship with God. And the beautiful part about it is you don't get the opportunity to screw it up. Because you probably would. Me too. So as we, again, I wanted to introduce this today, but we're going to build upon this. If you start to understand this aspect, the rest of Scripture becomes more clear because the Bible is written in covenants. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that every aspect of it, every letter, every number was placed there by the Holy Spirit and that we can glean from it, understand it, and apply it to our lives, Lord. And I thank you that you're opening our understanding to to the truth of it that we can walk in the fullness of your promises, that we do walk in this covenant that's based on better promises. And so, Lord, we thank you that every aspect of our life is to bring glory to you and that we can do that because you have given us every ability that we need, everything that we need to walk in the fullness of the life of God you've given us to us, Lord. And so we thank you for that. And, Lord, I thank you for opening doors of opportunity each and every day that we can walk and fulfill as ministers of the gospel, to take the gospel of peace and let people know that there is an opportunity to have peace with God, to have a surety of salvation, Lord. Be glorified in every aspect of our lives. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you Wednesday.